Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is sponsored by Casey Underwood and you. Casey has kindly donated a print to be one here on Anchored. All you need to do is go to www.oursound-oursalmon.org, then go to the donate button, donate an amount as low or as high as you'd like, mention that you are a listener of the podcast in the notes section, and in two weeks' time, they'll randomly draw one of you to win a Casey Underwood print of your choice. Go to www.caseyunderwood.com to see your options. I'll be sure to post all of this information in the description. Thank you so much for all of your support. Dylan Tomain is an author, father, and straight shooter when it comes to conservation and doing what is right. Two summers ago, I met with him at his house on Bainbridge Island to see if I might be able to get some thought-provoking conversation about wild steelhead. I'm a little bit nervous to hear what you have to say, but I'm also really excited. Yeah, I'm a little bit nervous about what I'm going to say, too. So, (laughs) You know, I mean... Uh, I work in the industry, so I have to be a little bit careful on the record, which is a little bit different from when we're having a barbecue. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm happy to, to talk about these things. Well, let, let me lead you into this. So 
Um, and by the way, what happens in barbecues stays in barbecues. <laughs> that is the only one with humiliation going on. You have nothing to worry about. That's <laughs> what happens when you fall through a screen That's door. That's right. <laughs> yeah. for, uh, for April's listeners, I just want to go on record saying that uh, this is the second time she's come all the way out to the island here to talk, to do this. Uh, the first time she came, your intrepid journalist, April Vokey, uh, showed up in the midst of a giant fish party, and we ended up not ever quite getting to the interview. So uh, you guys should know that she came a long way a second time to get this done, mostly due to gluttony and other things that were going on when she was here before. And yes, I did fall through the screen door. Yes, thank you. it was worth it. It was entirely worth the first trip just to watch that. Um, let's start out with who, who you are. So where, where were you born and raised? I grew up in Corvallis, Oregon. So Western Oregon. And I was one of those kids that, you know, somebody said, that uh, with there's two kinds of fishermen. There are people that were just born to it, and then there are the people that came to it later in life. And there's no judgment one way or the other. But I was a kid that was obsessed with fish from the time, I mean, every single memory I have had to do with fish. Every picture of me as a toddler, I'm holding a dead fish or I'm looking in the water or whatever. And so I th- for fishing for me really started out, I think, just as a way to get closer to fish. And I think maybe more so for me than other fishermen that the catching and seeing the fish is really an important part of it to me. Like I like seeing them, you know, and I like pictures of fish. I liked it. You know, it's really about the fish themselves, but I also like catching them and letting them go or eating them or whatever. So yeah, I grew up as a fish obsessed little kid and uh, my parents were divorced. And when I was, you know, eight, nine, ten, through until I got a driver's license, my mom, who knew nothing about fishing, would take me every Sunday. Every Sunday was fishing day. Really? And so she, I would just tell her where I wanted to go, and we would drive there. And she would, she was a PhD candidate, so she would study in the car, and I would just go fishing for Sunday afternoon or oh, Sunday day. So really cool. It's funny when I've gone back to fish the rivers I grew up fishing. Every once in a while, somebody will stop me and go, are you that kid whose mom used to wait in the car? <laughs> you know, I mean, here it yes. is all these years later. I'm like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> um, so I, I uh, was famous or infamous for being kind of this pathetic fish case. Um, you know, and then, then you get a driver's license and, and the world sort of explodes and opens up as far as where you can go and what you can do. And I think, you know, the my arc, as it were, was that I probably spent the time when I was, you know, 16 to 26, where every single resource and every single thing I did was all predicated on getting to the next fishing spot. And so, you know, nearly flunked out of college from being fishing all the time. And, you know, nearly, I've probably ruined my career because of fishing. You know, I don't really have a career. I don't even know what your career is. Oh, okay. Uh, what uh, did you take in college? Well, I started out as a pre-med. I thought I was going to be a doctor. And then I realized that somewhere along the way that I don't like sick people. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, actually, you know, what happened was I just, I wasn't cut out for the science. I was basically flunking out of school. Be okay. a combination of, of steelhead obsession and bad science intellect. You know, the dean basically said, come down to my office and we're going to have a talk. And, you know, you know, that's not good. <laughs> and they said, OK, here's your choices. You can do one of these other things or or we got to kick you out because you're doing badly. 
So what do you do? Um, so I chose creative writing because okay. it seemed. I, so I became an English major, and and then it was pretty smooth sailing from there. I mean, it was a lot easier. All of a sudden, the classes were interesting, and I was able to to uh, keep my head above water. So you graduated, and then what did you do? I went to work for an ad agency. They hated me there because I was gone all the time. From okay. you know, if it rained and fishing looked good, I was gone, or. You know, and I'd fish locally and try, I mean, really, I mean, it was about making enough money to just get to the next spot, which isn't really good for career advancement, you know, in huh. most. Depending, yeah. But no, in, in real life, it, it doesn't work very well. Yeah. Um, even if you're in the fishing industry, you have to go to work, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. So, yeah, so I did that. And then uh, that I'd gone to school in Northern California and had my first job. I worked at an ad agency in California. And then after a few years, I just realized I had to get back to the Northwest because I grew up here. You know, I wanted four seasons and rain and all that sort of thing and Mm -hmm. be closer to decent steelhead fishing and salmon fishing. So I had a buddy who was living in Seattle and said I could crash in his basement till I found a job. And so I loaded up and came up here and then I was supposed to be looking for a job and but I was on the Skykomish for 40 days straight. When I happened to move up here in the spring when there was a, when the catch and release season on the Skykomish was still happening. And so that sort of, and, and now here I am um, all these years later. So what is your actual title then? You're, you work for an ad agency still to this day? No, I, um, I'm a freelance writer. I split my writing time between, um, to actually pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a commercial writer, so I write ads and catalog copy, okay. uh, mostly for outdoor companies. Patagonia is one of them. Uh, also, I do some work for Farbank Rio. Um, I wrote the Sage catalog for 11 years. I've worked for pretty much every outdoor manufacturer in one way or another, just on a freelance basis. And that kind of is what pays the bills. And then my, my hobbies <laughs> are, you know, I write for magazines. And then uh, I have a book out called Closer to the Ground. Yeah, can we talk about that a bit? Yeah. Uh, the book is uh, about it's about foraging and fishing and gardening and cooking and eating with my two small kids. I think that's in the literal sense, that's what it's about. But I think it's really more about uh, valuing the passage of time and gratitude. You know, the book sort of started, I was just trying to record some of the things that we were doing as a family at the time. When did it go out? In the fall of 2012. The second edition is coming out in September of this year, so we're scrambling around to, this is my commercial messaging. The second edition is paperback, so it'll have a lower cost, but it has a lot of photos of the kids and the family during the time when the book takes place. Oh, cool. So it's it's a revision. It's not just a reprint. Yeah, it's, a, it's actually a second edition, and then it has recipes, so that I've been trying to learn how to write recipes for the last the last couple of months. So wow, um, it's funny because when I wrote the book, I had no intention for it to ever be useful to anyone. And the publisher now is convinced that that the way to sell this book is sort of making it more utilitarian and having some actual use other than just being a bunch of stories so mm-hmm. you know I always tell people that I I wrote a book and when the editor was done with it we had a pamphlet right. <laughs> so, it's, it's it's, uh, so now it's a pretty fast read but uh, so that's sort of another part of it and then I spend you know more and more each year it seems like a pretty large part of my time working on these conservation issues mm-hmm. with relation to you know mostly about salmon and steelhead issues so 
all in all, it's a, it's a pretty fun way to spend my days. It's really busy. It's really hectic. And it's a sure path to the poorhouse. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the get-rich-quick scheme that it might sound like. No, no. But it's, uh, you know, I feel like this is what we were talking about earlier. That I think that, you know, there's, there's much more awareness about conservation among anglers now than there was when I was a kid. You know, I think, well, I can tell you exactly when it started. When the, the spring wild steelhead season on the Skykomish closed, so that was, it was 2000. Until that point, I don't think I ever thought about conservation at all. All I thought about was having enough money for pizza and top ramen and beer and gas to get to the river. And, you know, it was really a, <laughs> just a me, 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 more fish, more fish, more fish sort of sort of thing. And um, Did you know deep down that you were being selfish or did you just not realize at that point? No, I was so selfish that the, <laughs> I didn't even have the awareness to look back at myself and go, wow, what a what a selfish ass. I mean, it just didn't occur to me. And, sure. you know, I had enough work, freelance work that I could pay for a drift boat and a car and plane tickets occasionally. And it was really just, when I think about it now, it was a very self-centered way of approaching the fishery. And I think that things have shifted because up till that point, nobody had ever talked to me about conservation or, you know, I mean, a few people had mentioned, you know, I knew that they were had made it wild release on the Deschutes and I knew that you know I knew people were working on those things but never really occurred to me that it would have any effect on me or that I should be doing anything I mean it was really just the classic sort of selfish fisherman guy and then I somehow I got word early that they were going to shut down that season and I remember calling the other selfish fish bums that yeah. I knew and going, holy shit, what are we going to do? They're closing this fish. You know, I don't, there's plenty of fish. What's good. You know, and I had not looked at any of the science, you know, during that time, during the nineties, the, the fish population on the Skykomish was really going downhill, but our skills were getting better at the same pace. And so we didn't really notice, you know, we were getting better at it. And so even though there were fewer fish, we caught the same or more fish each year. And so it didn't really register that there was a problem Yeah, the illusion is that there's more fish there than... Yeah, because you get better at it, right? So you catch more fish. Right. You know, and that Skykomish fishery, I mean, I get choked up when I think about how good it was. You know, we had a lot of years, I, I say this to people all the time and they don't believe it, but I had, if I look at my fish journals, there were, you know, four or five years where I was averaging almost two steelhead per trip on a fly to the Skykomish over 40 days in March and April that I would fish it, and almost never full-day trips. I'd work in the morning and go fish in the afternoon, or I'd fish in the morning and work in the afternoon. And, you know, we there were a lot of really big fish in that. You know, the third week of March on the Skykomish, every year you and the people you knew most likely caught a 40-inch class steelhead. And, That's amazing. I mean, it was a really good fishery. And so when they shut it down, what felt like right in the middle of that, you know, it's like somebody punched you in the stomach, you know. That was my wake-up call. I had no inkling up to that point. And then when that happened, it was pretty, it was like somebody cut your arm off or something. I mean, it was really traumatic. And then so we, you know, I started doing some research. And um, it was about that time that a lot of us who were freaked out about this closure uh, got together and the Wild Steelhead Coalition formed kind of out of that that time. But then very quickly, 
you know, the guys, my heroes now who'd been talking about this all along that we had just been ignoring or didn't have contact with were right. The last thing I saw is that during that time period, we were probably fishing over 3% of the historic run of wild steelhead on the Skykomish. So if you're averaging two fish a day per person, and that's only 2% of that run, I mean, if you think about how staggeringly good the fishing would have been 75 years ago, one of my buddies said, well, we wouldn't even fish. It would be so easy. It would be like fishing for humpies. But the, the people who've really been my mentors and heroes, you know, people like, like Bill McMillan, mm-hmm. who I think you might have talked to, Bill McMillan, Bill Bakke, Bruce Hill and Gerald Amos up in British Columbia, yeah. uh, Kurt Beardsley um, with the uh, Wild Fish Conservancy here. These guys knew about this and were working on these things long before it ever occurred to me or any people in my generation. And, and I think now I feel really thankful that they've been patient with me and taught me a lot of stuff and not just looked at me like the selfish person <laughs> that I probably deserve to be looked upon. But those guys, I mean, they've been at it for some of them, you know, 40 years. And the value of what they're doing, I think, is just now being grasped by the wider fishing group. Which brings me to my earlier point that's so amazing is that when you go to fish conservation events now in the 2015s, which Mm -hmm. is crazy, there's a lot of young people there. A real community, I think, has grown up around. I look at like Jake Crawford at Native Fish, who's this young gung-ho guy that's bringing a lot of energy to it, you know. There are a lot of people like that now, and I went to, I gave a talk about the hatchery issues. I guess it was last winter. I went on the boat over to Seattle and there was, you know, a dozen people going to the same event and they were young, you know, early wow. 20s, like young guys and, and, and women, right? I mean, yeah. so you know this. I mean, you're part of it, right? Yeah. I mean, there's been a real revolution of, of young women anglers mm-hmm. who are also becoming very powerful advocates for, for conservation. And so all those things are so uplifting to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I sound like I'm the old guy now, <laughs> um, but... I mean, really, when I was a kid, a fish lunatic kid, it was pretty lonely. Like, I didn't know other kids that were into fishing or the environment or conservation or anything like that. I mean, it was... Every man for himself. Yeah, it was just, you know, I mean, there were adults that would say, hey, I'll take you fishing, and you could learn about fishing and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But it wasn't like there weren't groups of your peers that were into throwing a fly around or, you know, I mean, it's really, I mean, that has really changed, I think. And the sad part, though, is it's happening at a time when the resource is much more limited than it was. I mean, there were just a lot more fish around, whether you go back 20 years or 40 years or, you know, 50, 60 years. The the, the fishing was a lot easier and better then. Yeah, it was. Um, which is maybe why people are more engaged now just out of necessity. Maybe. You're kind of the guy who's known as that guy in the Damnation video. <laughs> Do you know that? No, I didn't. Sometimes I'll mention your name and someone will give me a look and I'll say, yeah, you know the guy from the Damnation video. (laughs) Do you, what's most, what's on your priority list right now? Hatchery fish, dams, your favorite five weight, because you know that that's what uh, my favorite subject is. Did you, what did you want to talk about? So, yeah, I mean, I can give you my two cents on the hatchery system. Let's touch on hatchery, because I think you're the one person who's going to be able to take a lot of the facts that we've heard from both sides Mm -hmm. and kind of be able to offer just that straight shooter 
viewpoint. And then I really want to chat with you about the damn project that you had. If damn that's okay. Project. The damnation stuff. Oh, okay, yeah. So go ahead, straight shoot me. Your hatchery viewpoint. The hatchery viewpoint. I think one of the really important parts of this is the hatchery issues become incredibly divisive. As you know, through all your interviews, I'm sure that you've heard different sides of the story. That's the exact thing I said today when I had my last interview. It's very divisive. It's very divisive, and and it's counterproductive, and it's the fact that it's divisive is because of ignorance. Okay, I mean... You know, if you want to call it pro and anti-hatchery, for lack of a better term, it's more nuanced than that, but it's easier to grasp that way. Um, there are a lot of accusations from the pro-hatchery crowd that the people who are fighting hatcheries are trying to take their fish away. And it's flat out not true. And as, I mean, especially in my case, I'm a fisherman first and foremost. I want more fish. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody said to me, well, our job in fish conservation will be done when I can invite you over to my house for a wild steelhead barbecue. Absolutely, yeah. And and so I think this idea that somebody, you know, if you drive around the Oregon coast right now, there are pro-hatchery stickers with the, the no symbol across Native Fish Society's logo. Oh, really? Um, you know, there are people who are really upset about it. When we do these talks, you get bombarded with emails and comments on posts and chat rooms and so the first thing that I think is that that most of us who are working on the hatchery issue and trying to reduce it actually want more fish for all of us and that you know I mean there are some facts that you have to look at and one is that where hatcheries are introduced overall harvest and harvestable numbers of fish goes down so Okay, so for all the reasons I'm sure, you know, other people have probably talked about the biological reasons for it. When you introduce, so on the Skagit, for example, there was a sustainable 15,000 steelhead a year harvest for decades when it was all wild fish. They put the hatchery in there and the numbers of harvest crashed and it is exactly in opposition. If you look at the graph, uh, as the number of hatchery smolts put into the Skagit increased, almost exactly mirroring it in negative is the number of harvested fish each year. I mean, it, it crisscrosses like that, and you can see. But you know, what's the reason for that? There's, I mean, it's a, there's a million reasons for it. The hatchery fish have a negative impact on wild fish in every stage of life history. So from competition as juveniles to increased really highly unnaturally elevated levels of predation because this huge biomass of hatchery fish is all released at the same time Mm -hmm. to uh, competition for safe habitat in high water to, I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, we know that uh, one unharvested hatchery fish spawning with wild fish reduces the the survival rate of the offspring by 50% in the first generation. So you get a hatchery male salmon or steelhead on the spawning beds that probably, you know, will stay there for several weeks and spawn with, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 females, who knows, and reduce all of their offspring by 50%. So it's a genetic issue. You know, hatchery steelhead are a domestic animal. They're the difference, hatchery and wild steelhead or hatchery and wild salmon are like the difference between wolves and dogs. They started at the same place. And one has been raised to live inside the confines of your house and eat the food that you feed it. 
and one has adapted to live out in the wild. And the strange thing about it is wild fish, if you this is why those broodstock programs don't work. These integrated hatchery programs that people are moving to now, they don't work because you're taking genetically adapted wild steelhead and trying to raise them in the hatchery. So the survival rate's really low. If you take a domestic steelhead or salmon that has been bred and evolved to survive in the confines of a hatchery, tightly packed square enclosures, those fish survive at like a hundred percent rate from spawning, you know, from egg to smolt rate. I mean, the survival is really high. The wild fish, if you put them in that environment, it'd be like trying to raise a wolf in a kennel. You know, I mean, they just don't live. They don't, they can't exist. So, so you have two, I think, just different species really now. But what's the hatchery advocate's argument on that? One of the primary ones is, this is what we hear all the time, is that, oh, it's about habitat. That, but the number's not working. What do they say about that? Uh, they can't argue that because that's, I mean, they will agree that that is what has happened. I mean, it's, okay. it's, it's been scientifically documented over and over and over again. There are, you know, reams of peer-reviewed published scientific studies that show that hatchery fish have a negative impact on wild fish. And, you know, you can see it. So on the Skagit, we went from 15,000 steelhead harvested every year for decades and decades and decades. And it was, you know, relatively sustainable. When they put the hatchery in over the first, I think it was about the first 10 years from when they really started to ramp up the hatchery, there was a 90% reduction in harvest that corresponded with a ramp up to half a million hatchery smolts being released per year. So, you know, I think Last year, I was looking at the catch statistics. I, I think there was 143 steelhead harvested in the Skagit, sport harvested, down from, from whatever, 15,000 when we had no hatchery there. Wow. So this is where we get to the, one of the main arguments is we need hatcheries to make up for loss of habitat. The Skagit has so much unused spawning and rearing habitat that it, that argument doesn't even hold water. We know this because uh, pink salmon, and uh, bull trout and cutthroat trout all use a lot of the same in-river habitat for spawning and rearing as steelhead. Mm -hmm. And cutthroat trout and bull trout have remained stable or climbed in population during this time period. Pink salmon population has exploded. Those fish are living in the same habitat using the same gravel and the same spawning areas as steelhead would be using. The only difference is there's no hatchery supplementation of those fish. And so while their populations have been stable or growing, the wild steelhead population has been crashing. And the main difference is that there's hatchery fish there, hatchery steelhead. What about when, when I asked the hatchery guys that and they just immediately jumped to ocean survival? <laughs> you know, that's a great question. And it's, it's a Ocean survival affects all the fish, but ocean survival in times of, of tough feeding conditions in the ocean, the wild fish clearly do better than the hatchery fish because they're more adaptable. They're, they have different life histories. They're more able to survive. You know, the hatchery fish are almost clones now, right? They all come back at the exact same life history. The wild fish are going to do better in changing climate in variable ocean conditions. And so when people say that, oh, we can just blame the ocean on it, 
to me, it doesn't hold water because we know that if that's the fact, we should be doing more for wild fish and less for hatchery fish because the hatchery fish don't survive in bad ocean conditions. Mm. You know, the, their percentages go way down. I think one of the great little anecdotes, one of the great stories of this is the Eel River. Have you heard about the Eel? In, in California? Yeah. Yeah. So the Eel River in 1964 had a population of 82,000 wild steelhead, you know, which is a huge amount of fish. And the eel's not a huge watershed, you know. Uh, so they had 82,000 wild steelhead in 1964 the, when the hatchery was put in there. The hatchery was built because in the late 50s there were a series of big floods that scoured gravel and, you know, the state in their infinite wisdom felt like in order to help the fish recover, we need to put in a hatchery. So in 1964, there's 82,000 wild steelhead. The hatchery starts operation. They start ramping up and adding more and more fish year to year. By 1994, in 30 years, so 64 to 94, the total run on the Eel River was 1,500 fish. Hatchery and wild fish combined. So you went from 82,000 to less than 2,000 in 30 years. So, But the story is even better than that because... In 94, that's the reason I take that number is the wild steelhead were listed, were Endangered Species Act listed, and part of the deal on that listing was they closed the hatchery. So 94, you go forward 20 years to 2014. So now we've had 20 years without a hatchery and nothing else has really changed on the eel. 20 years without a hatchery and last year's run was estimated between 50 and 60,000 wild Oh steelhead. my goodness, Wow. That's a success. Yeah. So you had, in 30 years, you went from 82,000 to less than 2,000. That's the 30 years the hatchery was operating. In 20 years without the hatchery, you have a rebound that's almost back to where it was before the hatchery. And if you look at the growth chart on returns, you know, it's not unimaginable that in the next 10 years or so, we'll be back to the historic run size on the eel, which was uh, more than 100,000 fish a year. So is this part of the problem, though, is that it does take, say, 20 years to get those numbers? I, you know, I think that's faster than most people f would even imagine. Well, in the, the grand scheme of things, it's, it's very fast. But when I, know, I know that when I sat down with the hatchery guys and they were chatting about programs that have happened more recently, they, they mentioned forestry as an example, and they mentioned regrowth, I mean, replanting as, as a way of kind of an analogy, if you will, or a comparison to the hatcheries. Mm -hmm. And my argument was we're still recovering from the impact of that forestry. It takes time to be able to see these things. Well, and this is so much faster than forestry. I mean, it takes you, what, 75 years to even get a harvestable tree to grow back, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we're talking about... Fast, you know, on the Tootle, which, you know, it was part of that damnation thing, but on the Tootle River, within, what was it? I think it was seven years of, of being wiped out from Mount St. Helens in this totally alien, destroyed landscape. It was just volcanic ash with, like, trickles of muddy water. You know, the Tootle River went from zero wild steelhead to having more wild steelhead than any other lower Columbia tributary in seven years. And it was the only Lower Columbia tributary that had its hatchery program canceled. And so that was, I mean, you see this over and over again. The, the other really great story of this is Montana, right? So you had... You're talking to trout hatcheries here? Yeah. Yeah, can I you mean, please explain that? In the late 60s and 70s in Montana, they were experiencing a statewide 
kind of spiral of the trout populations. The fishing was getting worse and worse. So they hired this young biologist. This guy's name was Richard Vincent. And his job was to find out why why the trout are going down the tubes in Montana. Mm-hmm. And so, and they're working hypothesis was that it was stream dewatering because there'd been a big boom in in water diversion for cattle ranching and agriculture and stuff. So he wasn't even looking at hatcheries. He was just trying to figure out what was going on. And what he found out was that there was huge reductions in trout health and size and population in every place that they had been planting trout, hatchery trout. And I think it was so counterintuitive, you know, what we add more fish and then there's less like that doesn't seem right, mm-hmm. um, that he had to redo his studies and he, he got really deeply into it. He started on the Madison, but he spread out around the state and, and everywhere he went, he kept finding the same thing, that in places where hatchery fish had been put, there was like, uh, you know, 30, 40% reduction in the number of trout that were, I mean, total trout that were there. So this guy, Vincent, the biologist, kind of went on this campaign to try and get the state to shut down the hatchery programs. It's a lot like what's going on now in the Pacific Northwest, but this was back in the 70s, you know. And again, the pro-hatchery people there, most of the fishermen, basically tried to outshout him, and it got really nasty. He talks about not being able to take his family out to dinner in town. People were really angry with him. Don't take our fish away. The difference is that the state of Montana listened to the science. They looked at his science. And they said, you know what, you're right. In 1974, they canceled this hatchery program statewide. So within four years of canceling the hatchery program in Montana, um, brown trout had doubled in abundance and size. And rainbow trout abundance increased 800%, and their size increased 1,000%. Whoa! So our biomass increased 1,000%. So the fish became radically more abundant and radically more robust. Um, and that was a four-year, re- that's four years for that bounce back to happen from canceling it. And so now, you know, Montana is the crown jewel of North American trout fishing. People travel from all over the world to go fish there, brings in millions of dollars a year in the economy, all simply because they canceled the hatchery program. How is that not a solid case study, though. It's, I mean, that's the thing is that when you start arguing these things with the pro-hatchery people, there's so much emotional resistance to this. And I get it. You know, usually if you and I disagree about something, we can still be friends. But this is one topic where I'm finding that people, friendships are being ended because I, I've of I've lost a bunch of friends over this. But wh- Why? Uh, it's such a visceral thing. People are so emotionally, you know, I mean, for me, I get emotional, I mean, about it in conversation with people who are ignoring the science because because I can see that that is that it's detrimental to the overall goal, which is having more fish for all of us. But there is something about people feeling like you're taking something away from them. Um, When in reality, when you look at the Eel River, you look at the Skagit River, you look at the Toodle River, you look at Montana, that the chances are really good that if you cancel hatchery programs, there will be more fish and it'll be pretty fast. Now, I mean, you have to be a little cautious. You can't overpromise. I mean, certainly it's not going to rebound like that in every watershed. But we know, I mean, here the very bottom line of this whole thing is that we know, I mean, these are scientific facts. We know that the presence of hatchery fish causes wild fish to trend towards zero over time. 
because of all the biological issues, the, the genetic issues. So if we put hatchery fish in the river, eventually the wild fish will be gone. We also know that hatchery fish trend toward zero over time because of inbreeding and domestication, which means if we keep the hatchery programs around, we will have no wild fish and then we'll have no hatchery fish, which means we'll have no fish. And I just, I can't accept that. I mean, that is to me, you're, you know, you're looking at short term. So, you know, the flip side of this is that, and, and this is why I feel like I can be sympathetic to the other side of this, this story as well, is that uh, I spend a lot of time in the summer fishing for hatchery Chinook in Puget Sound. Most of the rivers that I fish in Washington are only open because of the presence of hatchery fish. The wild fish are ESA listed and the state has to apply for a permit with the feds to keep it open with a fishery that is targeted towards those hatchery fish to be harvested. Now, if you take those hatchery fish out of those rivers, they won't be open. So we will, over the short term, have a period of time where we can't fish. But is that really a bad thing? Now, you know, I just, I gave this talk in Portland last, or two weeks ago, and at the end of the talk, and I like to do this, I asked the people, I said, hey, if you knew that your only shot at having fish for your children and their children was to not fish for the next five or ten years, would you be willing to make that personal sacrifice? Yes, ten times and over. And every single person in the, in in the room raised their hand and said yes. So so that's it. That's where we're at. I mean, that is the choice because the hatchery fish, you know, Chambers Creek, where the Chambers Creek stock of hatchery steelhead came from, it's the most domesticated, easiest to raise hatchery steelhead that does the most genetic damage with wild fish. That came from a place called Chambers Creek, which is in Puget Sound down by Tacoma. And it's a exact microcosm of what we're talking about as they took wild fish and domesticated them in the hatchery on Chambers Creek and released them back in now as genetically changed domestic fish, the wild fish of Chambers Creek went extinct. And now Chambers Creek fish, the hatchery version, are so inbred that they're coming back in smaller and smaller numbers every year. So when they come back inbred, they just, they, they die? Is that it? Is there Large percentages of them don't make it through each stage because they're not... You know, evolution continues no matter what your environment, right? So this is like back to my high school genetics class or biology class, right? I mean, this is assuming you believe in evolution. We know that evolution continues regardless of the environment. The evolution that has taken place for hatchery steelhead or salmon is so that they can survive in hatcheries. Mm -hmm. And that involves being more aggressive feeders so that they don't know to be wary and only furtively sneak out to grab bites to eat. They have to be aggressive because they're with hundreds of thousands of their brothers and sisters. And so it's the fastest, you know, if you snooze, you lose, right? So they're super aggressive feeders with no regard for personal safety. They're protected from predation. They don't have any of the skills, the instincts that allows wild fish to actually avoid predation and survive. And so as you keep inbreeding them and domesticate them further, they're less and less adapted to survive when you let them go. So they get eaten in the rivers. They can't find food in bad ocean conditions. They come back and don't know. They don't have the instinct for selecting the right spawning gravel, you know, if they're going to spawn in the wild. And so you basically have a, have a, you know, it's like taking 
the Kardashians chihuahua and turning him loose on the savannah in Africa and going, yeah, survive. You know, I mean, they just can't. And so they eventually will go extinct. And so keeping things the way they are now is an automatic lock to eventually have no fish at all. I mean, really our only choice, especially, I mean, in light of climate change that's happening, increased human population, we need the wild fish that have diverse life histories, that have strong instincts and pure genetics so that they can survive as things change. And, and genetically, these fish have evolved to survive catastrophic changes, you know, landslides, volcano eruptions, temperature changes, all those things. They've survived for millions of years. Mm -hmm. Even if we weren't going to experience climate change and even if the pop human population wasn't growing and all these things that really increase the need for wild, diverse genetics. But even without all that, if everything stayed exactly the same way it is now, the wild fish would go extinct because of the hatchery fish, then the hatchery fish would collapse, and then we'd have no fish. So that's the that's why I get wound up about it, because you have all these people that are fighting to say, I just want to keep it the way it is now. Well, first of all, the fishing's piss poor as it is. You know, I mean, you want to line up at the hatchery mouth and fish for the few clones that make it back in a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder situation. I mean, the, we all know that the fish quality, the angling quality of hatchery salmon and steelhead is poor. You know, they're smaller fish. They're not as aggressive to artificials. They don't spend much time in the lower river sections. You know, they race to the hatchery. Again, it's evolution. All the ones that lingered were caught and eaten. And so the ones that survive are the ones that don't eat anything in the river and race straight to the hatchery. So... You know, on the Deschutes, you got a mix of hatchery and wild fish. The sport fishermen catch a lot more wild fish disproportionate to their proportions in the population purely because they're better biters. Yeah, and I've seen that myself. Have you guys learned it all from Canada, you know, any of the Canadian studies? I you know, I mean, that's... <laughs> Canada is... I love Canada. I love British Columbia. It, in a lot of ways, is a second home for me. I mean, the, the Skeena River system is like because most of my rivers are in such sad state here. I mean, I would consider that kind of my home river, mm. home watershed. Uh, so I spent a lot of time up there and there's a lot of things that are different. I mean, so for one thing, when we talk about the amount of money that Montana has brought in because of canceling their hatchery program, if you look at the Skeena, the Skeena supports a $100 million a year salmon economy with no hatcheries because there are no hatcheries, most likely. You know, $100 million a year into really small communities. I mean, you, you live up there part of the year. Yeah. I mean, where else is that kind of money coming from other than resource extraction? But this is fully sustainable. So people say, you know, there was a guy at the last talk I gave that stood up. He was from Northwest Steelheaders, and he, he stood up and said, um, my clients as a guide, and if we're going to get kids into this, you know, they're not interested in fishing if they can't bring fish home. That was one of the arguments that I was given. Okay, well... I totally disagree. Yeah, I totally disagree, too, because if you look at the Skeena River, there's, there's no steelhead kill on the river, and there's no hatchery on the river, and it's probably the most valuable money-generating steelhead fishery in the world. You know, so that doesn't hold water for me. So not having hatcheries in a lot of the watersheds, especially in northern BC, I think makes a big difference. Granted, the population is lower, the human population is lower, so you have less suburban sprawl and some of the environmental or habitat issues. But, you know, the wild steelhead campaign that was uh, led by Bruce Hill, who's one of my heroes, 
had a huge impact. The other thing I think that's really, and maybe you can shed some light on this since you're up there, is that the great mystery to me is that in British Columbia, every great conservation battle is led by the First Nations and is supported by the white NGOs. In Washington and Oregon and California, but mostly in Washington because of the Bolt decision, the environmental organizations are generally at odds with the tribes over issues like hatcheries. And it's so different that when I'm in, you know, I was at Bruce Hill's birthday party a couple years ago, and the amount of activism and personal commitment that's going on and the fact that it's being led by these First Nation tribes to preserve their salmon, their steelhead, their forests, their landscape was so refreshing to me. It was so inspiring. You know, we had Shannon McPhail yeah. go hiking up to, to stand with, with the First Nations that are kicking the Fortune Minerals miners out of their camp. You have Taltan grandparents chaining themselves and lying down in front of bulldozers in the sacred headwaters. You know, you have... It's amazing. It's incredible. I mean, the amount of stuff... And, and the battles are huge because if you go to Terrace right now, you can't get a hotel room because of the resource extraction corporations that are in there to build pipelines and open up mountaintop mining and I mean you know the resource extraction threats are huge up there but the motivation from the First Nations is incredibly inspiring absolute acts of heroism and when you talk about you know the Heisla elders saying that if you log the kitlope that the river will run red with blood and actually forcing this entire watershed to be preserved for eternity mm -hmm. you know and then you talk to the Heisla now and they say, this is our gift to humanity. You know, we didn't just save this for ourselves. This is a world heritage thing. Right. You know, we don't have that here. I think the difference, especially where it comes to hatcheries, and I don't know what the root of it is, but I think part of it is the Bolt decision that is centered around harvestable numbers. So I think that's part of the issue. Another issue that makes it harder for, for a lower 48 First Nations is they're dealing in a much more densely populated area. There's been much more habitat destruction and encroachment. You know, things, I mean, for all the problems northern BC has, they don't have the population up there. And so if you can stop resource extraction, you have relatively pristine habitat. So I think that's part of it. I think northern BC, a lot like Pebble Mine in Alaska, has these ready-made bad guys that are very easy to rally the troops to fight. You know, you have Enbridge that's going to build this absolutely retarded pipeline. I mean, you want to talk about a dumbass idea is like run millions of gallons of oil through a landslide avalanche prone landscape over the most productive salmon watershed, two of the most productive salmon watersheds in the world. I mean, asinine, right? Pretty easy to rally people around that because it's so obviously bad. It's like Darth Vader, right? Pebble yeah. Mines, same thing, right? You have, you know, this really bad company that has a really bad idea. And if you defeat it, everything's going to be fine. Bristol Bay will be beautiful. It's pristine. There's no people there. It's going to be awesome. So it's really easy to get these coalitions of people to fight that. You know, Enbridge is the same way. The, you know, the Patronus LNG plant at the mouth of the skin, another absolutely idiotic idea. But it's easier to rally around because you have this central bad guy. 
you know, a lot of what we deal with here is a death of a thousand cuts. It's the Fred Meyers parking lot that has a little more runoff issue. It's the, you know, a couple McMansions being built on the side of the Tolt River. It's, you know what I'm saying? There's, there's no, there's no, it's not easy to rally. It's hard to rally around even hatcheries because it's not, you can't make the beautiful film about saving the one watershed and the people who live there. It's this pervasive spread of humanity. Yeah, that, everything's interrelated and I'm yeah. exhausted. Like I was just on the phone with my husband on the way here. And I, I was, this has been an emotional trip for me. And I said to him, I cannot wait to get back to BC and just have it be simple again. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to go north and I'm going to fight all those things with the girls, but, and, and, and with the, the community, but this with you guys, every time I feel like I'm getting down to the core, fuck, I get hit with something else. Yeah. You, you know, is so it dams? Hard. Yeah, it's dams, but it's hatcheries too. Okay. Well, is it hatcheries? Yeah, but it's suburban sprawl. Okay. Well, is it suburban sprawl? Well, it's runoff from brake dust on cars. Okay. Well, you know, is it that it's the pavement from the shopping malls? It's the, and then you also still have resource extraction. You have logging issues. You have, you know, and I mean, basically what, I mean, the sad thing, what I realize is, you know, it's that old quote, we've met the enemy and he is us. Another great hero in the fish conservation world, Kurt Beardsley, you know, I look at what he does from day to day and it's like the kid with the dam and the leak and you put one finger in and then another leak pops up and another leak pops up. And it's a lot like that for guys, you know, and gals in British Columbia as well, because if it's not LNG, it's the pipeline. If it's not the pipeline, it's coal bed methane. And if it's not coal bed it's methane, fish it, farming and it's fish farming. I mean, there are a lot of issues, but I think, I, I guess what I think is that it's so much easier in British Columbia to have a us and them. And here, the problem is us and us. So we know that in America, there is a long history of people ignoring scientific fact for whatever their belief is. Okay, we see this in religion. We see this in business. We see it in politics. And sadly, it's boiled down. I mean, it's, it's trickled down to we're in the same position in the hatchery debate. These hatchery issues are global. You know, the, the country of Wales recently countrywide canceled their entire hatchery program because of these, the science we're talking about now. They know it doesn't work. Uh, they've seen the same thing throughout Europe and Scandinavia. They're seeing the same problems in Asia and Eastern Russia. The huge influx of salmon that are being put out into the North Pacific between our hatcheries and the Asian hatcheries in Japan and, and Russia, whether it's ocean conditions have changed or climate change, if you believe in it, there are a lot of years where we're exceeding carrying capacity for salmon. There isn't enough food. And we know this because on years of peak salmon escapement from hatcheries, you know, artificially high numbers of juvenile salmon being put out in the ocean in Russia and Japan, the average size of Bristol, Bristol Bay sockeye shrinks significantly. So we know that. I mean, it's a fact. And yet, you know, I saw somewhere that Russian has, Russia has announced plans to really ramp up their salmon production in their hatcheries in eastern Russia. What's that going to do to our fish? We don't know. We know that the Rocky Mountain states, you know, Montana made this decision and it's now the destination trout fishery in the country. You know, so Idaho, yeah. Wyoming, these other, they have not done it. And they have a lot of watersheds where they have basically collapsed trout fisheries. It's become a put and take, follow the hatchery truck around 
because of the hatchery fish. Eastern Canada, they, you know, the Eastern United States, they've tried Atlantic salmon hatcheries. They, I mean, they come up with the same results everywhere. You know, Montana listened to the science. I don't know why Washington and Oregon won't look at the science. Now, there's anecdotes that are the opposite of the anecdotes that I shared with you. You know, they, people point to the Nisqually River all the time, right? They took the hatcheries out 15 years ago or whatever, and, and the salmon and steelhead have not rebounded. Okay, so, that, so that's a good argument. That is a good argument. They'll say, well, what happens if this happens on my river? So what I would say about the Nisqually is the fact that they stopped the hatchery program before the wild fish went extinct and the fact that in the time since they haven't gone extinct shows that it's working. Now, the numbers haven't rebounded because of, there's a number of reasons, all potential. It, yeah. There was a lot of genetic introgression there so that the wild fish that remain have a lot of the hatchery genetics in them now, and so they're having a hard time. That purifies itself over time, but it takes longer than in places where you have some clean genetics in existence. Um, the Nisqually had some habitat issues that are being worked on and changing now. But the wild fish on the Nisqually were in a spiral. I mean, they were going down the tubes fast, and they canceled the hatchery program because of it, and they flatlined. So they haven't bounced back, but they haven't gone extinct. And so to me, in a place that's had that much genetic introgression and was in that bad a shape, the fact that they haven't gone extinct is as uplifting a sign as the huge rebounds we saw in the eel and the Skagit and the Tootle in Montana. But the Nisqually comes up a lot. There's a number, you know, there's other places where they'll say, and there is a good chance that if you canceled, you know, if you waved your magic wand and all the hatcheries just exploded, that's not a call for environmental terrorism. No. <laughs> Thank you. Um, a lot of these rivers are going to bounce back really fast and you're going to have numbers greater than you ever imagined in your entire life. I mean, there is a potential like on the Skagit and some of these other rivers over the next 20 years to see more fish than anybody in three generations has seen on those rivers. I mean, mind-blowing numbers of fish. But there's also a number of rivers that aren't going to bounce back. There are a number of rivers that will bounce back somewhere in a medium rate. I mean, it's every river is different, right? And so it's not, it's not this blanket that poof, everything's going to be awesome. But what I believe is that it's the only chance we have. If we stay where we are, we'll have eventually no fish. And so that's, I mean, for all the reasons we've talked about, there isn't a choice. If you want to have fish for your kids or your grandkids or, you know, their grandkids, even if things stayed the same, that's the only shot we have. And things aren't going to stay the same. We know climate change is, is changing our oceans drastically. You know, ocean acidification is happening now to the point where the oyster farms on the coast here, there's too much, the water's too acidic. They can't hatch the babies anymore. They have their hatcheries are in Hawaii where there's less acid water. And then they ship them back to raise them to market size here. Um, you know, and that's just happened in the last five years. We have all these young people now that are more engaged, and as they start to learn about it, that can have an effect. But I know you're concerned about the divisiveness. Sadly, I think this hatchery thing is going to be decided outside of the fishing community's hands. And I believe that the answer to this is that when you take this enormous waste of public money to the soccer moms and dads and the general voting public, the general electric rate paying public and show them how much they're spending for really small special interest groups 
that they're going to demand that their elected officials stop wasting their money on hatcheries. And, and then it's too late for the, the fish people. I don't think they're going to make the decision. I think they're going to go down fighting, and it's going to happen without them. Do you I mean, think that's on its way? Is yeah, it I, that's what I think is going to happen. I mean, you look at the numbers. I mean, the numbers are insane on what it costs to produce hatchery fish. The North Fork of the Nooksack River, their returns of hatchery steelhead are because of that domestication and inbreeding process. The wild run is in sad shape because of the hatchery fish. The hatchery fish return at a rate of one-fourth of one percent now. So that raises the cost of a Nooksack, a single harvested hatchery steelhead from the Nooksack River up by Bellingham now costs up to $2,700 a fish to produce. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my right, life. So Bill McMillan always says, he says, you know, you should ask your neighbor when you come home with that one fish you caught and killed how he feels about having spent 2700 of his <laughs> dollars for your 10 minutes of recreation. You know, and so that's what I mean, taxpayer outrage that you start to look at. I mean, you know, when you look at, let's see, federal government spent $16 million to build the fish hatchery on the Elwar River to mitigate for the removal of the dams. We're removing the dams to recover wild salmon populations. All the science says that hatcheries are detrimental to wild salmon, and yet they spent $16 million of taxpayer money to fund a brand new state-of-the-art hatchery there. Washington State legislature, so other people say, well, the hatcheries are supported by licenses, so it's not the taxpayer's issue. 2012, the state of Washington spent $56 million in capital funds, so general rate uh, tax-paying funding, $56 million for hatchery improvement and repair. This is a time when... How does that the, compare to education? And, and well, that's what, yeah, exactly. Class size is ballooning. The teachers were on strike two weeks ago because they haven't had a pay raise in six years. You know, I mean, you're talking about craziness here. The city of Seattle just finished building a $30 million sockeye hatchery on Lake Washington in a place purely to fund a very small tribal and recreational sport fishery uh, in a lake that the scientists all said was already at carrying capacity that adding more smolts would not result in more adults. They did study after study and they spent the money anyway. I would be irate if I lived here. Yeah, I mean, it goes on and on and on. You know, I mean, there was so and you're not a U.S. federal taxpayer, but there was a federal hatchery on the Eniot River, which goes into the upper Columbia, that was producing spring Chinook for the commercial spring Chinook fishery, which is like a handful of guys down in Tidewater. They've closed this hatchery now because of the cost that got out into the public as to what we were paying for it. But the cost of a single harvested hatchery spring Chinook from the Eniot hatchery was $68,031 per fish. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow, I definitely need to start wearing nicer clothes when I go out for dinner to eat hatchery <laughs> yeah, fish. Yeah, so you, you, know, you look at that, and that's why I say that I think once the word starts to get out on this, and there are a number of people working on trying to get this out to a larger audience now, that, that the guys that are saying, hey, I just want to be able to fish for my hatchery fish, aren't going to be part of the decision on this. I think they're going to get overrun by the general public saying, quit wasting my money. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Don't forget to read the link in the description for details on how to win Casey's print. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.